Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you to whoever you are listening to this. Before we start, just to remind you that we do this podcast two, three times a week, but we don't always know which days it's going to be on, so there's only one way to know, and that is to subscribe and get notifications. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Right, enough about that. Let's talk some rugby. Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. I'm Ben James. I'm joined over the phone from another part of the world by Simon Thomas, Needs Must. Um, it's a different sort of series that we're going to be uh, taking on. Obviously, coronavirus has got us all in lockdown. There's not much rugby or no rugby going on at the minute. So we've had to look elsewhere for ideas. And one of these is we're going to get our writers to recall some of their favourite matches. And kicking us off, as I say, is Simon, uh, who's got a very special match indeed. Haven't you, Simon? Yes, this is very much like um, time machine journalism, I find, now that we're in lockdown. I seem to be spending a lot of my time, even more of my time, heading down memory lane, because um, there's no current action, But I, which is quite nice in a way, because it does allow you to sort of, a bit of time to sort of reflect on some of the, the great players in the game, the great characters, and a few interviews with ex-players, and, and great also to think about um, great games. Now, I was asked a week or so ago, to actually pick my favourite game, my favourite occasion. And, you know, it's very difficult because I've, you know, watched and covered hundreds, probably thousands of matches. And a lot of them matches with absolutely packed stadia. But the one I went for as my favourite, the one we're going to start off with, was actually a game that was played out in front of just 27,000 people. And uh, I think that might give it away immediately to people. We're talking about Wales's uh, victory over South Africa in June 1999. This is this is a game that's not quite before my time, but it's before my my memory. Certainly, <laughs> I think I was three. So there's a lot of context around this match, isn't there? Let's. I suppose you have to, you have to, you have to go back a yeah. year, I guess, to get the full context. Yeah, don't you? you do. I mean, you actually go back virtually a year to the day. Um, Wales's victory over South Africa in um, the New Millennium Stadium in 1999 was on June the 26th of that year. Now, on June the 27th in 1998, Wales played South Africa in another fixture, and that was a very different result. That was um, at Loftus Versfeld in Pretoria. It was a Welsh um, tour that was had been decimated by injuries and absentees, and a lot of youngsters were thrown into that game. It was a very unfamiliar-looking Wales team. And Wales lost 96-13, which remains the biggest ever defeat the Welsh rugby team, international team has taken. Um, Nick Mallett, the South African a Springbok coach after that game, described the Welsh team as the worst international side he'd ever seen. So that kind of puts it in context. It was a humbling, humiliating day for Welsh rugby. But I always recall after that match, um, the caretaker coach in that tour was Dennis John, obviously famous for Pontypridd. And he said after that, if Wales play South Africa in a year's time, we'll beat them. Now, you know, everyone kind of chortled, what on earth is he talking about? But as history, you know, told in the end, he he was spot on. But it was it was just a period then when so much was going on. It was such, you know, when I sat down and thought about it this morning, the context of that game, what a year it was, really. Because obviously after that, um, you know, very, very difficult tour to South Africa, Wales brought in Graham Henry. And his first game in charge was actually against South Africa, again in the autumn. That's a game that a lot of people forget. It was at Wembley Stadium, because obviously the New Millennium Stadium was under construction. And Wales put up a really good fight in that match, and were leading at one point. And people may remember that it was a kind of pivotal turning point, where Streaker ran on the pitch. 
And a lot of people feel that if that hadn't happened, they could have broke Wales's momentum and they ended up losing the game. But it was such an encouraging performance under the new coach, Graham Henry, the Kiwi who'd come in uh, from New Zealand. That he was dubbed the great redeemer. And there was, you know, huge hope about it. He was bringing new players in, Shane Howard of the world. Um, but then the actual Six Nations, Five Nations as it was then, followed at a very stuttering start. Wales lost to Scotland, they lost to Ireland at Wembley and you know, people were wondering whether it had been a bit of a false dawn. But then over the next few months, um, Henry's influence really did tell. And there's some you know, famous victories. Wales won in Paris for the first time in 24 years, beating France, they beat England. You can forget that one, Scott Gibbs and all at Wembley. Triumph for two in Argentina. And then they came to the game against South Africa in June of 99. And uh, it was all set for an absolutely incredible occasion in more ways than one. But as you say, only 27,000 in the crowd that day. Yeah, it was. It was a weird one because um, I, I don't think people, people who weren't around at the time would realise just how sort of um, close a call it was in terms of getting the stadium ready. Obviously, the stadium was being built for Wales to host the 99 World Cup in the autumn of that year. But there were various issues in terms of delays. It was a very complicated project with a walkway having to be built along the riverside. Um, I used to, we used to be our office, which is sort of next door from where we are now, the old Thompson house. I remember we used to be able to go up on the roof there. And over the sort of two years prior, you were able to go up and look at the sort of development of the stadium. It was an incredible project. But as the clock ticked away and you, you realized just how much work was left to be done, you did wonder whether they were going to get it ready for the World Cup. And certainly, by the time of that game against South Africa, which originally, I think, had been the idea of being that would be the first, you know, full house run through ahead of the World Cup, there was still so much work to be done that that the um, the capacity was strictly limited to 27,000. And there's some great stories around that. Um, I remember sort of that in the in the warm-up, the, the captain's run, as we call it, you know, the last run through for the Wales team before the match. Um, they had um, hard hats ready for them in the dressing room for them to go out for their training session. I think in the end, Graham Henry decided that'd be a bit too much. But that shows you just what the background was. And it was essentially a building site, you know, and um, the, the, the crowd was sent pretty much behind just the one set of posts. And I always remember that, for the anthems, Wales actually, uh, as, as opposed to what normally happens, they, they weren't facing the main stand for the anthem. They were actually turned towards the posts, towards their spectators. Were. Just, just what, the whole thing for me, but it was a really surreal day. Like I say, literally watching a rugby match in a building site. But I mean, the other thing as well, you've got to remember just what a good South African team this was. That's the other context to it. They smashed Wales over the year before, but they're also world champions. Won the World Cup in 95, famously, with Mandela and PNR and everything that goes with that. They'd won 17 games in a row, 17 test matches in a row, equaling the world record. And you look at the South African team that played that day, some truly wonderful players, you know, Percy Montgomery, to Blanche, Peter Muller, Yappy Mulder, Peter Rousseau. Um, Drotsky, uh, Visage, the prop. There's such a powerful pack with, with Krieger and Gary Teichman, of course, who went on to join the Dragons and you put them Dragons. So it was a, it was a awesome team. But Wales had a developing side themselves. And, um, for all, you know, for all the kind of great results in that year in 99, the England win, the France win, I think as a performance, that victory over South Africa, which we're going to talk about in 29-19 to Wales, I still think that was the best performance in the Graham Henry era. 
obviously spoke a lot about sort of building delays. What wasn't kickoff delayed by about eighteen minutes because of problems with turnstiles? Yeah. But it was. I mean, you would think that it be, wouldn't be such an issue because it was only like a quarter full or well under half full. But obviously, there were teething problems getting people through. I try, I've been trying today to remember exactly how I got into the ground. Now, anybody who's been in, in the kind of the in, inner workings of the stadium, for the press area, you kind of go in through a little door opposite um, the Major Wales building and you go through a long corridor. I can't remember how it was. It, it was. I'd actually been in the stadium before. We'd had a tour there. Oh, probably a month or so earlier. I think essentially to show us around, but also particularly to show us the press facilities, which I'll mention a bit more now. Um, but I can't remember how we got in. I think we must have been sort of guided in by some some uh, you know construction workers or security officers. But anyway, we we found ourselves into the press box, and that was obviously the first game where we we were sat in that press box. Now, I've always said it, it's the best stadium in the world, but it's got just about the worst press box in the world if anybody's ever been there. Um, it's actually true uh, that it was kind of forgotten about in the original plans, and there wasn't there wasn't one placed in the in the in the, in the scheme, which is hard to believe, but it's true. So in the end, they had to just take out some seats on the lower tier, or on halfway, and put the press box there. And you know, you're very close to the action, so you get a good sense of the atmosphere, as you'll know, Ben. It's it's very low level, and um, if anybody stands up in the, the seated area, the fans area in front of you, it, it's hard to see anything. Now, now you're able to kind of get around back of there are big screens you can you can check those people can look at the game on their laptop you know follow it with a live feed but there was none of that on that day on that day against South Africa there was no screens there was certainly no laptop provision on the internet and as a, before all that happened um, so you, you basically got one look at things with your naked eye and it is my confession that I've still never properly seen Mark Taylor's first try in that game because my recollection of it is as he received the ball is of about 20 construction workers jumping up in front of us in the seats in front of us and then as he scored hard hats flying up in the air so I think it was about 20 years later before I finally got to see a clip of that try as I say it was a, it was a very surreal day it's funny that because I always feel like the, the try that probably gets missed is the Gareth Thomas one, the finish, just because the camera, whenever you see the highlights, the camera doesn't quite get to Gareth Thomas in, in the corner. I'm not sure whether that was to do with constraints on the cameras due to the sort of all the construction stuff, but that, that's the one that I always find you miss. It, it, in a way, you see, I think you're right, because that try to me kind of summed up the strengths of that Graham Henry team in that initial first year. There were two pivotal uh, players in that side. There was Scott Quinnell and Neil Jenkins. And it was, you know, so appropriate that they were heavily involved in that score. It was a big carry by um, Scott Quinnell. And the ball comes out from Robert Howley. And then everyone thinks about Neil Jenkins' goal kicking. You know, he kept Wales kicking over with the, the boot in that area. But he was a talented, skillful rugby player as well. And the pass, the fingertip, receive and give pass that he uh, produced to put um, Gareth Alfie Thomas over in the corner. That was a great skill, a lovely pass. And really that was the moment that, that, that sealed the victory. It, it, was, it was relatively comfortable and it was one of those unusual ones where Wales had a bit of a buffer and you kind of knew 10 minutes ago they, they were going to win. Um, but when I think back on the performance, there's various things to go. One thing that's often forgotten is that Mike Voyle came on in that game. Um, he'd been a bit of you know, generally a bit of a fringe figure in the world squad and certainly wasn't a, a first choice starter but he was like squad member but on that day uh, Scott Quinnell broke his thumb after about 20 minutes and Mike Boyle came on 
Uh, Craig Cornell, sorry, Craig Cornell. Didn't broke he, he broke thumb. it on AJ Venter's head, didn't he, from the kickoff? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Broke it on his head. And, and he came off, and he'd been a big, you know, big kind of physical presence for us. Mike Voyle came on and had the game of his life. Really, really impressive performance. And um, it was part of a, of a dominant Welsh pack, really. The, the Welsh scrum that day, you know, historically, South Africa such a strong scrummaging side. And you look at the front row, South Africa had Robbie Kempson, Nakadrovsky, Kubas Fisage, you know, big men's powerful and the Wales at the upper hand in that day. Um, probably arguably that one of the greatest scrummaging uh, hookers Wales ever had, Gary Jenkins, in, in the middle of the pack, middle of the front row. And then Peter Rogers, who in 99 was, was arguably the best loose head in the world. And Dai Young, you know, hugely experienced tight head, having come back from rugby league. And they did a number on the South African pack then. Got them into pressure, got the nudge on them a number of occasions. And that was a big factor in Wales' victory, as was their defence in the second half. When South Africa did a bit of Peter pressure, the Welsh defence was absolutely outstanding. And um, it, all round, it was it was the kind of performance that what it did. I remember coming out of that game afterwards, and people were saying, "We're going to win the World Cup." You know, we were host nation. We we're on a kind of record equaling winning run, which is to continue in the lead up to the World Cup. Comprehensive win, win over France to come at the stadium. Um, it was a heady day, and I, I still remember the atmosphere in the streets after that match. You know. People could hardly believe what was going on. You've got to think of the context of this. For 20-odd years, success had been very few and far between for Wales. And all of a sudden, they'd just beaten the world champions for the first time ever. They're hosting the World Cup. They'd beaten England, beaten France. They were heady, heady days, you know. And uh, I, I can I still, I still remember the, the, the sense of disbelief around about that time, that what on earth was happening. But he really was, at that point, Graham Henry, the great redeemer. Indeed he was. And I think Sir Tasker Watkins was parading the World Cup around the stadium, wasn't he, before kickoff with um, Francois Pina? Well, yeah, you had that sense that it was imminent as well. The other thing I remember about that game, Ben, was afterwards, it was obviously such a famous win, but the, the press room um, hadn't been completed downstairs. The, you know, there was still work going on in the, the sort of the tunnel area and the sort of infrastructure of the stadium. So the press conference was actually held al fresco. We sort of walked across to the other side of the pitch and ended up sitting on the kind of bench area. If you can imagine when you when we look out in the press box, you know, when you see the substitutes sitting down and the sort of staff there, and it was in that area, in a, in a cordoned off particular bit, no no fans had been there, that we sat and just on the benches with Graham Henry and, and just chatted about an incredible win. I always remember how calm he was afterwards. And he was um, a wise old owl, Graham, and um, he'd plotted that performance. He'd watched South Africa. I mean, he knew them so well, those players, from his time with the Blues, you know, and he understood South African rugby. And he just created the, the perfect game plan for them, you know, because they rely so much on the machismo and the physicality. He, he sort of snuffed that out with the scrum and snuffed it out with the Welsh defence. And when they had a couple of opportunities, they struck. And yeah, I'll always remember it was a lovely day and just sitting out there and sort of, uh, I think everyone, even the press corps, you know, hard-bitten individuals, we were all just pinching ourselves and trying to work out just what had happened and what kind of days we were living through. I know our, our colleague Andy Howell he, he continuously goes on about the atmosphere that day and the fact that 27,000 sounded like 150,000 yeah it did I and mean, that's true and a lot of the players who played in that would have said that as well the noise they created 
um, w- w- when you consider that it was a zebra quarter full, it was incredible, really, just in the one section of the ground. And it was just the whole, the colour of it with those the construction workers in there as well, sort of doing the dance of jig. And it was just a nice touch that they were sort of invited in because obviously they were working their socks off to get the stadium ready in time. But it was just, it was just unlike any other sporting event I've ever known for all the context and all the, the background and what was going on in the stadium and what was coming up with the World Cup and the sense of Wales on a roll and just uniqueness of it. It was, as I say, totally surreal. It really was, literally because so few people were there, it was one of those I was there moments. And the context, again, when you move on forward from that, is that was Wales's first ever winner in South Africa. And it was to take them 15 years and 17 more attempts before they were to get um, a second victory over the Springboks. So that just shows the magnitude of the victory, really. I'm Sam Warburton, and you're listening to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Of course, Rob Howley captained the team that day, didn't he? And he scored the final try at the old National Stadium. It was Mark Taylor, as you said, who scored the first try at the new stadium. But I believe the PA system didn't quite know that, did they? I think they yes, said- they, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. They announced that the try was scored by Alan Bateman. Now, what happened there was that both Mark Taylor and um, Alan Bateman, two very fine centres, they were both essentially outside centres and both preferred to wear the number 13. Um, now, on that day, Scott Gibbs, I think, was injured. I, think, I can't remember exactly what his injury was. And they were around up at that time. You, you had three top centres there. And it was a real sort of battle about who would play, who would sort of join Gibbs. Gibbs was kind of first choice, you know, obviously, Lions hero from 97. And, and Bateman and Taylor were kind of vying to play outside him. But Gibbs was unavailable through injury. So Bateman and Taylor played together. As I say, they both were 13s, both wanted to wear 13s. But Mark Taylor got to the, um, the dressing room and he he was wearing number 13, so grabbed the jersey. That was what he was in the program, number 13. Bateman was down as 12. But he tells the story that Bateman was kind of not really happy about this. He wanted to wear 13. It was the number he liked to play, you know, superstitious. Kind of kept on about it. And he was as late as in the tunnel area. But that Bateman kept on going on about it. And Mark, oh, okay. And swapped jerseys. So ended up with Bateman wearing 13 on his back and Mark Taylor wearing 12. So, of course, when Taylor goes on his outside break, hands off and goes to the line, he's walking back and the stadium announcer says, looking at the shirt, and the try was scored by Alan Bateman. They, they, he says how they exchanged um, a smile and a chortle about it. But, um, yeah, it was certainly Mark Taylor's try, the millennium man's try. And considering you didn't see the try... I assume, thankfully, you managed to get the copyright for the next day. Which bit is that now? Well, you didn't. You didn't see Mark Taylor's try, and then you had the the PA system saying Alan Bateman. Oh, I, I, presu- I presume me. you managed to get it right in the copy. Now, I'm trying to remember whether my trusty colleague A. Howell was sat alongside me, and his view would have been even lower down, as readers will be aware, listeners will be aware. But I think not one or two people had managed to see through the forest of construction workers and fans in front, people in front of us, and had worked out it was Taylor, and um, he did have a very distinctive running style. Yeah, so I, I think in my... Uh, my, in my Football Echo report, that's how long ago it was, uh, Ben. We used to have the wow. Football Echo. And I remember doing the, the sort of runner, as we call it, um, the, the immediate match report. And yes, thankfully, I did get it right in the copy. Sort of a team effort to make sure we all got the right scorers that day because there weren't any replays. 
It's funny you mentioned earlier about this, this win generating the belief that Wales were going to win the the World Cup later on year. Obviously, they were hosting. It, it reminds me of a story that probably wouldn't have happened too long after that match, which was when Wales went um, up to Brecon School for their pre-match, for their pre-World Cup training squad, and Steve Black had them pretending to lift the, an imaginary World Cup in the Cricket Pavilion. Have you ever, yeah, ever heard it, that one? It's funny. Just this morning, I was talking to um, Andy Marinos, um, a people listeners will remember, played for the Dragons and Newport and played for Wales. And he was talking about that training camp up, up in Brecon. Um, he, his, his links to Wales were through, um, I think, grandparents from Anglesey. So he, he was his first time with Wales to use and he found himself heading north, not quite as, uh, a bit further north than you, Ben, but not quite up in north. Yeah. <clears throat> quite north up. But, and he did talk about Steve Black. He didn't give that particular anecdote, but it's the kind of thing I can imagine Blackie doing. And I, I think that he he was such a, a big part of that of that team that that success really. He was brought in by Graham Henry, recommended if I'm right by Pat Lamb because he was at Newcastle, and I think Henry had been talking to Pat Lamb, who he knew obviously from the Bloons in Auckland, and talking about somebody he could bring in on the conditioning side. And I, I think Pat Lamb recommended him, and Black was interesting. Right, he his um, role was more conditioning the mind than conditioning the body. I think it's fair to say, and he was uh, he was. Was just a massively influential figure for a lot of people there. Almost like a psychologist. You know, you talk about sports psychologists. They didn't really have them back then. But he was almost ahead of his time in that sense. He was very different as a conditioning coach. But I talked to, I remember talking to Ben Evans about him when I did a piece with Ben, and he was saying, just Steve Jack back just said a way of bringing yourself out of yourself and expressing your feelings. And you, you, then utilizing those feelings and those emotions on the pitch. And there's some great pictures, aren't there? I think I remember one in particular memory of um, him embracing Peter Rogers, and maybe that, after that game or another match, and embracing Ben Evans as well. Um, and Blackie was, somebody or the players you know really felt fondly about and he just he was a mind he was a mind coach and he was um, somebody who instilled such confidence in the players along with Graham Henry and the rest of the coaching team I remember hearing Scott Quinnell talk about him uh, Steve Black used to suffer terribly from insomnia so All right. I, th- I think it'd get to the point where he'd always be sat next to Lynn Howells on, on the bus would always fall asleep to the point where I think Lynn Howells thought he was putting him to sleep. He was that boring. <laughs> well, of course, Lynn Howells was part of the coaching team in 1998, and I remember talking to him about it. And he said, "I've never been, I've never been 96 by end. Never had anybody's got 96 against me, and it, it hurts." And so I think for him, because Graham kept him on as forwards coach, you know, that meant um, an awful lot. But, him that day and I've been talking to him after the game he's a proud man Lynn and sort of you know he's the forwards in Pretoria took a real pace team but it was a very different kind of pack and he was at the helm of that pack and it meant a huge amount to him as well and he was a, he was a good man Lynn and uh, yeah it, it was I said it, I just have a recollection of oh, it's a little weird this one I remember walking back into the office after the game the old Thompson house and one of the news reporters or something like that just kind of said, well done. <laughs> I said, well, that wasn't actually anything to do with me. But it was that kind of feeling, you know, a recognition, a recognition of how much it meant to people who, who loved rugby and having gone through a lot of dark days in the 80s and the 90s and very recently gone through the darkest day of them all in Pretoria. And Mark Orders, our colleague, tells a great story about that game in Pretoria 
where the match had just finished, 96-13, the feet, as I say, he was like packing up his pen, packing up his notebook, and uh, just feeling, obviously feeling a bit disconsolate, and what are we going to write about that? And uh, a, a, a South African supporter came up to him, you know, walked up to the press box and came up to him, and he said, are you Welsh? And he said, um, yeah, yeah, expecting he was going to get... Uh, some words of consolation and condolence, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use another word. Um, he said, uh, "You've got that rubbish team." If I tell you that the word wasn't rubbish, it was something uh, slightly stronger. Now, that was uh, that was the nature of the kind of the Boca Boca fan, the uh, the kind of Boar fan. They, they didn't mess around, but it was a fair reflection of how Wales were viewed at that time, confirmed by what Mallet said, and then to turn it round in the space of a year, 12 months exactly, was an incredible achievement, really. Because our, our colleague Mark Orders has got a few stories from South Africa. Didn't he run into the, <laughs> the island captain the week before and he said, don't worry, we'll soften them up because the island played them the week before. He did. He is a great tourist, Mr. Orders. There are many tales I could tell you for another podcast, in particular the time he got bitten on a beach by a starfish. <laughs> that will always stay with me. I'll tell you that one one day. <laughs> he, he did a story recently about Colin Chavez, who, of course, played in that 98 tour and he was one of the few players who who, who weren't wasn't ruled out inj- injured in South Africa so I, I guess that made victory all the more sweeter for him in 99 Yeah he spoke quite strongly after that tour Mark recounted it how you know some players obviously had genuine injuries but then there were some players who were only made themselves unavailable for that trip and I think you know a lot of youngsters are left to sit in the firing line I think Travis was felt a bit, you know, aggrieved about that. But yeah, you could really a year later see, you know, the the difference when you did start to get the players back. You know, because we talked obviously about yeah, that South African team that day, and it was a hugely strong side. But I think it's important to remember, you know, although it was a kind of developing side in the Grand Indy, there were some quality players in that Welsh team. You, you run through it. Shane Howard, Gareth Thomas, Mark Taylor, Alan Bateman, David James, a lot of Lions there. Neil Jenkins, Rob Howley, two more Lions. Rogers, Garen Jenkins and Diane, you know, powerful scrimmaging. Craig Quinnell, Chris Wyatt and Boyle came off the bench. Wyatt, obviously, such a key part of that 1919 with his athleticism. And then the back row, Colin Chavez, Scott Quinnell, two more Lions. And then Brett Sinkinson. Our colleague, Mr. Orders, also did a piece with him recently. And he, he, in a very short time in that winning run, turned himself into an absolutely key cog in that Welsh team. The classic fetcher, the man, the link man, the man who would win the ball on the floor, make it available to others, do all the nitty-gritty hard work. And he had come in sort of in the middle of that of Five Nations that year. And within a matter of games, along with Rogers, two of them coming in, made themselves absolutely pivotal figures in that Welsh side. And that was a good, good Welsh team. And, you know, if you look back to the World Cup that didn't follow it, the quarterfinal against Australia, you know, that, that, was a, that was a game that was in the balance for a long way in the pouring rain and a couple of controversial decisions by the referee Colin Hawke turned it round, you know. And Australia were the best side that World Cup. They only conceded one try. But, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a heady old year for Welsh rugby. Indeed it was. Um, I suppose we'll finish up then by asking, because you'll, you'll have two more games as well to pick, but you did pick this one in, in the piece last week as the best game you, you've ever witnessed. Yeah. What is, it, what is it that separates it? I just think it's because it's completely different from any other game. I remember, I, just say, I can remember games with packed stages and singing and... 
you know, just huge um, noise and huge colour. This had those bits, but in a completely different way. Just the absolute surreal nature of it and the context of where we were a year ago and then who we were playing, the stride, the incredible turnaround and just the stories about it in terms of the trice, like all the little, little sort of quirky stories and the characters in that well side. And just, I think, one of the great wins by a Wales rugby team in one of the most unique settings I've ever experienced a rugby match. There we go. Can't put it better than that. I look forward to hearing what your your other games are, so. I should remember them now. <laughs> <laughs> Got plenty of time to think. Well, um, yeah, and um, best wishes to all the listeners when they get to listen to this. Uh, advice, you know, heed all the advice and stay safe. <laughs> 